Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In whom he predestined, these he also called. In whom he called, these he also justified. In whom he justified, these he also glorified. And now, Father, we want to understand and be changed by your foreknowledge of us and your predestining of us and your conforming us to the image of Christ and his exaltation as the preeminent one in all things. So come and help me now to speak the truth and grant that every person listening to me would have spiritual ears to hear and eyes to see the truth and the glory of Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. We devoted three messages to Romans 8.28, the great 8.28. And we said there that Romans 8.28 is part of Paul's argument for verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Why are the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing? Because all of them, including everything else, will work together for our good. So you see the link between 28 and 18 now. Verse 29 is where we go today. And it begins with the word for. Because. Because Paul is moving now into the foundation of this massive promise that everything will work together for your good if you're called and if you love God. How can he say such a thing in a world like ours? Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So there are three great works of God here that are performed to guarantee verse 28, to guarantee verse 18. And to put rock under your feet, no matter what kinds of storms blow on you. Work number one, he foreknew. Work number two, he predestined. And work number three, he conforms us to the image of Christ. Two of these are long past. They happened before you ever existed. And before the world was, foreknowledge and predestination. And the third one is happening now and will be completed at the coming of Jesus. Namely, you're being conformed to him. Now, I'm aware that in all likelihood, 
some of you are sitting there with hang-ups, objections. They might go like this. Frankly, I don't really care about decisions that were made long, long, long time ago, who knows when, before the creation or whenever, like foreknowledge and predestination. I live now. I care about now. I don't care about long, bygone things. And what's more, from all I've heard, this predestination thing is nothing but trouble, and so... I just as soon not think about it. That would be one possible reaction. Another would go like this, and this I think might be more frequent. Frankly, I don't want to be like Jesus. He probably never had sex. And he was so dead gum serious, I don't know of a day in his life he might have had fun. And he was so unbelievably controversial, he got himself killed. So how in the world is that supposed to sound like good news? So you can just keep your promise that I'll be conformed to Jesus and I will be conformed to something a little more bright. I can imagine that. Let me say a word to each of those um, hang-ups. If somebody offered you a million dollars this morning, I mean, if they just walked up to you and said, I'm going to give you a million dollars, you'd have a right to be skeptical and suspicious. And then suppose they pulled out of their briefcase an old wrinkled sheet of paper and said, my father, who was very wealthy, died about five months ago, and in his will... You were named as a beneficiary, a part of the inheritance, and um, you're going to get a million dollars. I doubt that at that moment you would say, well, frankly, I don't care about decisions made in the past. (laughs) And besides, from all I've heard, settling the meaning of wills, especially among relatives, is nothing but trouble. And so just count me out. Let's be honest, folks. Let's be honest. What God decided to do in his foreknowing and predestination is 10,000 times more relevant to your now than a million dollars. What about the person who says, frankly, I don't want to be like Jesus. That doesn't bode well for my life. I wonder if that is not only based on a misunderstanding, but based on a very narrow and constricted understanding of likeness to Christ. What about when you die? You want to be like Jesus when you die? I mean, when you die, you will meet a judge. The creator of the universe will call you to account for how you lived your life and what you made of his son. Do you want to be like him? When Jesus died, it was terrible. And three days later, 
he rose from the dead. Want to be like that? Or you want to go to hell? I got up at four this morning because of that prayer meeting we have. And at five, I emailed Abraham. He's living in Pensacola. And uh, he walks a mile from where he's living to get his email at a library every now and then. And I thought to myself as I was getting ready for the sermon, he'll probably do that on Sunday. And I want to be the first one there. I always want to be the first one there. And so I wrote him an email at five this morning. I said, it's five o'clock, Lord's Day morning. He'll probably get this at three this afternoon. (laughs) He wouldn't get up that early. And uh, I said, Abraham, I love early Lord's Day mornings. You know why I love early Lord's Day mornings? Because Jesus rose from the dead early Lord's Day mornings. And I imagine, Abraham, that as that God-given, self-wrought, triumphant, Twickle in his body happened at who knows three, four, five o'clock on resurrection morning, and he heard the <laughs> angels moving the stone, and he either miraculously or by some finesse got out of those grave clothes and stood on his feet to test his resurrection body and began to walk out into the light. Imagine what he was thinking. It is finished. Death is defeated. The devil is undone. Heaven is open. Hell has a new gospel sentry at it. Don't come in here. Go the other way. That's all I said. (laughs) I love you. Ben and Melissa coming over today. Wish you were here. Look, you're going to want to be like him someday. If you don't feel like it now, you will feel like it. And just hear me. This morning, you can become like him and get on a road of conformity to Jesus so that when the time comes when you know you're going to want to be like him, you will have become like him in measure. Just a measure. We don't get perfect in this life. So let's look at these acts. Because these, these three things, these three great works of God are spoken to you to put rock under your feet so that when the testing comes, you'll be able to believe Romans 8.28 no matter what. Some of you have gotten just terrible news in the past weeks that I've been gone. That shake your whole life to the foundations. Do you believe it? Can you believe it? How do you believe it? What does it mean, number one, that God foreknew those he referred to in verse 28? Because those whom he foreknew, what does that mean? Some would say, many would say, it simply means God foresees who will believe on him and then he decides what will become of believers. Now, there are two assumptions in that interpretation that are wrong, unbiblical, and which make that view impossible to believe. That he simply foresees who's going to believe on their own and then decides what the destiny of those believers is going to be. Here's assumption number one that is not true. It assumes that... Ultimately, 
we, in our own willpower, provide the decisive ultimate cause of our faith. That's the point of that interpretation. That God only foresees people not resting in God to provide the ultimate decisive faith that they need to believe, but producing on their own the decisive ultimate ground and cause of their faith. Now, that is a false assumption. It's false elsewhere in the New Testament because faith is described as a gift from God in Philippians 1.29 and Ephesians 2.8 and 9 and 2 Timothy 2.24 and Matthew 16.17 and Jeremiah 32.40 and other places that faith is God's work, it is God's gift. And not only that, it is Shown to be such here in this very context. Let's look just briefly so that you can see. You don't have to go anywhere else, but right here in Romans 8, 29 and 30 to see it. Look at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now think about that with me. Everybody who's called is justified. You know and I know from the book of Romans that nobody is justified except through faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Nobody is justified except they believe in Jesus. But this text says everybody who's called is justified. Not some of those who are called are justified, namely those who choose to be, but everybody who's called is justified, which means everybody who's called believes. How can that be? How can you say everybody who's called believes? Aren't some called who say no to the call? No. Now, I'm rehearsing an old sermon here from five weeks ago, so I can't give it all. But here's the summary statement. When God calls effectually, it's like Jesus saying to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. Dead men live when God calls. When God called you to himself effectually in and through the preaching, the preaching of the gospel is not the effectual call of God. It's the general call that goes out to everybody. In and through the gospel comes this mighty piper. Live. And you live. And the cry of the newborn baby is faith. Therefore, this text will not allow us to buy the assumption that foreknowledge is simply a foreknowing of a faith which we produce on our own without the decisive, ultimate enabling of God. That's clear, and therefore, this interpretation won't stand. That foreknowing is simply foreseeing self-wrought faith. It isn't. It's foreseeing God-wrought faith. Here's a second assumption that make that interpretation not work. The interpretation that says all that foreknowledge is, is the foreseeing of human produced faith 
so that it can then decide what will become of them, fails to give the meaning to the word no in foreknow, a broad biblical meaning that would make more sense out of this text. For example, let me read for you a half a dozen texts about knowing and you supply the meaning. I might chip in a suggestion as I go along, but it will be plain to you what knowing means. And then keep this text in mind as I read these. Genesis 18:19. God says of Abraham, I have known him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Every English version translates yada choose in that tense, which baffles me. They shouldn't. That is the meaning. But you ought to translate the word no, no, so that people like you can read it and learn the meaning of no for Romans 8, 29. It's not good when translators interpret. That's another issue. Amos 3, 2. God says to the people of Israel, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. You mean you're not aware of any of the other families? I have news for you, God, that it's obviously not what it means. It means you only have I made my own. I've cared for you. I've made you mine. I've chosen you. You only have I known. Matthew 7:23. Jesus said on the judgment day to hypocrites, I never knew you. What does that mean? I never knew about you. I never knew you were on the earth. I never knew anything about your life. No. I never knew you. I never made you mine. I never loved you with electing love. Psalm 1-6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He proves it. He sets his favor upon it. He acknowledges it. He recognizes it. Hosea 13.5 I knew you in the wilderness, Israel, in the land of the drought. I cared for you. I watched over you. I preserved you. One more. Genesis 4.1 Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. He loved her intimately. If you don't know that biblical background of the word no, so much richer than our heady word no, it will be hard, I think, to put a proper meaning on verse 29. Whom he foreknew, cared for, loved, chose, made his own. Listen to the conclusion of John Stott and John Murray. They are speaking in concert here. Quote, no is used in a sense practically synonymous with love. Whom he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent with whom he foreloved. Foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. It's virtually the same as setting your affection on or choosing And so the meaning of the first act of God that guarantees Romans 8.28 for those who are called and love God is he foreknew you. 
Before you were born, before you had done anything good or evil, God chose to embrace you as his own and make you his. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called because they are foreknown. Don't say, I don't really care about what happened a long time ago. I don't really care about what he decided to do a long time ago. Act number two, predestination. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, that simply means having chosen us for his own, having loved us for his own, having recognized us in the assembly. There, I recognize the man in the fifth pew there. Stand up. Recognize. That's the closest analogy I can find in English to foreknow is the word cognition to know and coming through in cognize, putting the re on the front and realizing there are two meanings for recognize, right? Somebody shows up and you see that they look like what you already know and you recognize them for who they are. The other is in the Senate. I recognize the senator from Georgia. Meaning, I call on you. You stand up. It's your turn. Act. I have picked you out. And that's the sense of knowing. And now those people whom he knows that way, he decides their destiny as conformed to Jesus. Predestined means to decide what's going to become of you before you exist. So... The foundation of this massive promise in 828 is twofold. How can you know that all things will work together for your good? One, because God foreknew you, loved you, cared for you, chose you to make you his. And he decided what the destiny of those people would be, namely conformity to Jesus. Forever. And ever, therefore, everything is working for your good. This is the million dollar clause in your father's will or his father's will. Now, at this point, objection number two becomes urgent, right? I don't particularly want to be like Jesus. So we have to talk about the content of predestination, which is conformity to Jesus, You are destined to be like Jesus, and he's going to be the big older brother in this assembly of those who are like him. And I'm not going to talk about that this morning because I don't have time. And I felt okay about that because, one, it really makes a good beginning and ending to next week's sermon because being conformed to Jesus in verse 29, is virtually the same as being glorified in verse 30. And so I'm going to begin here next week and end on glorified and show how the pieces in the middle fit together. There's another reason why I'm okay with stopping here, and that's because I have some more things to say about what I've already said by way of practical application. So you have to wait, and I do hope you'll come back, to hear what it means And I think you might be surprised what it means to be conformed to Jesus in relationship to his being the elder brother. What's going on there? Why is that mentioned?
when it's really talking about our benefits and it seems to mention his supremacy. And why is that? That's what we'll talk about next week. So let me close this way. If you don't have the mind of Christ, you're going to find more conflict than comfort from what I've said, probably. Your mind's going to be spinning out a hundred objections to foreknowledge as election and a hundred objections to predestination. Until you have the mind of Christ, you see the relevance to, to what's coming You've got to be conformed to Jesus to recognize that being conformed to Jesus is good news. You've got to be conformed to Jesus to recognize that foreknowledge as the embracing of a people before they were born is a wonderful thing. You've got to be conformed to Jesus in order to recognize that predestination is clearly biblical. I grew up with people for whom that was a cussing word. I went home years after I went off to seminary and had a relative of mine say to me, you don't believe in predestination, do you? I said, it's in the Bible. I mean, the word is in the Bible, not just the idea, it's in the Bible. There's a lot of people for whom it's simply a swear word. I mean, it's, it's, it's not even an option because they don't have the mind of Christ. They're not conformed to Christ. Now, I do not say that to scold any of you who are struggling. I say it for exactly the opposite reason. So be careful here. Don't misunderstand my attitude to you right now. I am saying this not to scold or condemn the strugglers. I am saying this, that conformity to Jesus is... Something that's got to happen to your head for you to embrace these teachings. I'm saying that by way of encouragement. Here's the way the encouragement works. We'll move from what I think you know and probably agree with to what you might not have thought of. Just as conformity to Christ behaviorally is a lifelong battle against wrong behavior or deeds... And just like conformity to Christ emotionally is a lifelong battle against bad feelings, so intellectual and doctrinal conformity to Christ is a lifelong battle against bad ideas. Do you see how the encouragement comes? We all are so glad and so thankful that we're in process and perfection is not required right now or we go to hell. It's not. We've got to be on the road, in the right direction, with the right Lord, looking to Jesus in order for our moral failure of conformity to let us survive. And so it is with our emotional lack of conformity. Ever get angry this week the way you shouldn't have? You're not in conformity with Jesus yet on the emotional spectrum, but you're on the way. Think of doctrine that way. This is why I do not get very bent out of shape when there are many people in the assembly who are struggling with many things. It took me years to get where I am, and i got a long way to go in understanding. Why should I get impatient and demand some instant grasp of these weighty matters when it didn't happen to me that way. 
So this issue of becoming like Jesus, being conformed to Jesus, that's not just a behavioral thing. That's not just an emotional thing. That's an intellectual, doctrinal thing as well. And so let us cut each other some slack. In fact, my closing exhortation would be, let's pray for each other. How many people pray about their thinking on matters? You pray for scholars Writers, preachers, yourself, friends, you pray about what they think, that God might be pleased to move in them and on them, to tenderize them and soften them and make lights go on. There's a very close connection between what you feel, what you do, and what you think. And it doesn't always flow from thinking to feeling and doing. It very often flows from feeling and doing to thinking. Our thinking is more governed by our feelings and our doings than you can imagine. We have the intellectual capacity to justify all kinds of thoughts because we have appetites we will demand to have satisfied. And if a thought gets in the way of the satisfaction, that appetite sends a message to the brain, think another thought as true. We are not rational people all the time. So I close with a word to those of you who are sitting there asking this question. Am I included? Am I foreknown? Am I chosen? Am I called? Am I predestined? You really all should be asking that question. It's a good question to ask. And the biblical answer is this. Do you see Jesus as more to be desired than anything else? Do you see Jesus as sufficient to save you from your sin and satisfy your heart? If you do, you are elect. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. You don't try to discern the mind of God on this by some way around Jesus. Oh, am I elect? Am I predestined? Am I foreknown? Am I called? I've got to find some magical way of getting into the mind of God so that I can do what I'm supposed to do or not do it. You don't go at it like that at all. You hear the gospel? He who has the Son has life. And you embrace the Son and you infer, I am therefore His. Because he promised that those who are his have the son. To as many as received him, no exceptions. To them gave he the power to become the children of God. Will you receive him? That's the issue. Not whether you can somehow discern your election, somehow discern your foreknowledge, somehow discern whether you're called. The issue is, will you have him as Lord? Will you have him as Savior? And then you may rest. That you are his. So let's pray. Father, I just long now for those who struggle right now in the room, not just intellectually, but affectionately about the feelings they have and the failures of their behavior and the failures and their emotions and the trouble of am I his. I pray that the preciousness of the gospel offer He who has the Son has life. 
To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. That they would embrace that like a life-saving floater in a moment of drowning. And then would you, Holy Spirit, do what Romans 8 says you do? The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Oh, Holy Spirit, leave none of your own doubting. And draw, oh God, draw in this service people to believe, I pray. Would you stand for a benediction? Now the Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his His countenance, his bright and smiling and merciful countenance in Jesus Christ upon you. And give you peace now and forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.